Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello there and uh, welcome to the program, she growlingly said. It's uh, September 9th, 2021. Just imagine 20 years ago on this date, we were living our lives, (laughs) didn't have a clue that in just two days, everything, everything we thought we knew about the world, our place in it, our security would be blown to bits. It's amazing, huh? Uh, you know, I've I've never had um, or listened to or even know if it exists a tape of that my show that day, um, which lasted went on to last close to eight hours, um, as I was joined by Doug Hurth and Jerry Boyer, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, I it'd be interesting to hear now, uh, or very difficult to listen to. I'm I I don't both. I'm sure. Would be true. <clears throat> so, where do we go from here? Um, in so many respects, I mean, our lives have ended <clears throat> also lately with the pandemic. And and so having our lives upended uh, is getting to be a little more business as usual. God. So, I want to start on a happier note today, if only for to soothe my own frazzled self. Um, so, so let us start with uh, with an obit. <laughs> it's always where I find the good news. I'm. It, it's amazing. It's always where I find the good news because you you read about a life well lived and uh and often you read the story of someone you didn't know was alive and you only come to know them upon their death and uh what is then written in appreciation of the life that they lived so i want to do that today because and i'm sorry about my voice I'll try one more time to clear. Okay, Um, this guy I'd never heard of. I feel like I know him. I'm looking at a picture of him. He's got a stethoscope and he's he's listening to um, the heartbeat of adorable little boy of about I don't know six who's smiling at the camera. The doctor's smiling too. He looks like so many people I know. He's got a certain kind of what a Jew would call a Jewish punim, a Jewish face, clearly Jewish. <laughs> so, but let me tell you about this guy. What a nice guy. 
His name was Joseph I. Kramer. Um, not sure what the I stood for. Isaac. <clears throat> and um, he he died uh, very recently at the age of 96. And he was known by so many people, generations of people, on the Lower East Side of New York. And it's because he was their doctor. And he was known, strangely, as the country doctor, because that's how he, <clears throat> that's how he did his job as a country doctor. In other words, a caring soul who was not part of some huge, monolithic, uncaring system. It's not how he started. I mean, he started like, well, actually, he went to um, medical school in Europe because he couldn't afford to go to medical school here. He was not from a, a wealthy family. His parents had owned a bakery in uh, in New York City, little neighborhood bakery. And so after graduating from college, he, he didn't have the money. But he thought, I, I know that in Europe, you can go to school for a whole lot less than here in the United States. And I mean, amazingly, this was in 19, you know, late 1940s. And college here and med school here was already too much for uh, some Americans to pay. So he went looking for a med school in Europe and found that a lot of them wouldn't take a Jew, which is pretty amazing after the Holocaust had just happened. Unbelievable. But he found one, and strangely, it was in Germany, or not so strangely, it was in Germany. And uh, so he went to the University of Mainz. I don't know how to pronounce it. And uh, and then he graduated from there with his medical degree. <clears throat> he came back to the United States to live out his dream of the American dream. He had said he used to think of the American dream as as um, a getaway in the Bahamas and owning a red Porsche. So he began to practice in Bergen County, New Jersey, a prosperous place, and he quickly got really disillusioned because he was treating people who weren't very sick. He was treating people who would call him if their kid's fever was all of 99.7, and he was feeling that he wasn't doing what he had intended to do when he was when he felt the need to be a doctor. He said he felt sometimes like an expensive babysitter. And there was one event, one night, that just turned him around. He had gotten a hysterical call from a patient from their home, and he rushed over to their home, only to discover that Nothing was really ailing them. They were just having a crisis. And he got so angry at these privileged people he was attending to that he 
went back home. He called uh, the doctor who was his partner and he told him, I'm giving you my share of the practice. I'm out of here. And he wasn't quite sure what to do after he did that, but he decided to go where he would feel like he was making a difference. And so he went to the Lower East Side, where actually he'd been born. And he set up practice on Avenue D in 1969 um, in a basement. Uh, it was a, a, a basement where, where he, kept, um, he kept the meds in a refrigerator and he kept the files in uh, kitchen cupboards. <clears throat> he never had a nurse. He just hung out a shingle, and boy, did they come to him. When he first started, it was 1969, and the Lower East Side was full of hippies and flower children. And as he put it, the hippies ended up going to law school or working on Wall Street, and uh, I stayed here. And then the Lower East Side changed from that hippy-dippy neighborhood into crack dealers and prostitutes. And it was a frightening neighborhood for a long time. He treated everyone. He had been a pediatrician. He became a general practitioner. He treated prostitutes, uh, drug dealers, priests, bookies, uh, you name it, and all the kids. He would see 40 patients on average a day, and again, with no nurse, no receptionist. Little children would be sitting in the waiting room next to drug dealers and prostitutes. And often when he had to prescribe medicine and he knew they couldn't afford it. He would walk them across the street where there was a pharmacy and he paid out of his own pocket for the medicine. When one man uh, lost his unemployment, he paid for his treatments for three months. And then of course, word got out about him. 60 Minutes does a, a piece and while uh, Harry Reasoner, who was the reporter at the time, was asking, was interviewing him on the street, the interview kept getting interrupted <laughs> as people walked by and said, hey, Doc, how are you? Everybody knew him. And in fact, one person, realizing it was a 60 Minutes interview, it truly interrupted. and. Uh, and said, this guy, this guy is the greatest guy in town. There wouldn't be a neighborhood without him. He ran what he would call a pay-what-you-can-afford practice. And since he was living in this poor neighborhood, people couldn't afford much of anything. He was a big guy. He was 6'5". often had a big smile on his face. 
And what finally did him in, the very system that he sought to escape finally did him in anyway. Because he had no nurse or any other employee, he spent his nights doing paperwork and filling out forms after forms after forms. He had spent 10 hours one day helping a suicidal young man. And he was trying to get Medicaid. He had to fill out a bunch of forms for Medicaid to get some payment for that 10 hours. He requested $19. He got 11. All of this enraged him. The system had enraged him back in the in the 50s, and it enraged him in the 60s, the 70s, it seemed to stand in the way of doing what needed to be done to help people. And he saw it as stinginess on the part of the government. And that's true, because we've talked about America is a cruel country. It doesn't believe in helping people. It does when Democrats are in control, but all too often they are not. And so, as he said, when he finally quit in 1996, he was in his 70s, he said it wasn't AIDS, it wasn't the fact that TB started spreading again or the resurgence of measles. It wasn't that he was in his 70s. It wasn't the money. It was the paperwork. He developed severe hypertension because he was in a state of rage all the time. And so he had to retire. And it's good to know that the hypertension didn't kill him. He lived to be 96. And every August, up until this one, he went back to the Lower East Side, to East River Park, for a reunion that was always held by all the people, the generations of people in that neighborhood who so loved him. One woman said last year, he really couldn't even get into the park. Everyone just surrounded him. He was every child in the hood's doctor. I don't know how he managed that, but he saw every one of us. There's a life well lived. Joseph Isaac Kramer. hero and doctor to the poor. So I don't know about you, but that made me feel better. 
anytime somebody bucks the system and says, screw this, <laughs> I'm going to do the right thing, even if the system is stacked against me. I'm going to do the right thing. Oh, okay. That's all I got. Uh, so much stuff here. Where do I start? Well, let's actually, let's just start with, um, it was wonderful watching that video. I did watch some news last night. It was wonderful watching the video of uh, Robert E. F. and Lee uh, finally taken down from his uh, pedestal, figuratively and literally, and they sawed him in half at the. Then he, on top of it, after they took him down, they uh, cut him in half at the waist, so the statue wouldn't be so tall that it couldn't fit under the overpasses, underpasses, right? Under couldn't fit under the overpass or over the underpass under the under what you get the picture they had to cut him in half um and you know i was thinking that i was remembering how i was taught about robert e lee cuz i'm a yankee and i mean i'm Real far north. That's where my education began, up there in the there in northern Wisconsin. And I realized that I had been taught, because I had to have been, I didn't come upon this idea myself, that Robert E. Lee was a wonderful human being. <laughs> that was my sense of him. A noble and wonderful human being, um, uh, dignified as hell in defeat. And in fact, the guy he surrendered to, U.S. Grant, I had, I was taught, was like this drunken jerk. So the guy who, in that scenario of the South loses and, uh, and, and, and Lee surrenders, Lee is the hero of the story by his deportment and how good he looks in the saddle. Handsome man. I always sort of gave him a pass, like he just couldn't fight against his Virginia. And so even though he was a West Point grad and this, I had this picture, this sense of him. And it didn't come out of nowhere. And then yesterday I read a piece written by a historian <laughs> about Robert E. Lee. And he was a monster. He was a monster. I'm I'm so blown away by 
you remember that that adage that you know the the victors write history. You know, if you want to know, uh, you know, the losers don't write history. The people who win get to write the story, the narrative. But you know what? Like a lot of adages, it ain't a hundred percent true, because in our civil war, the losers wrote the history. Fake news, fake history. And their fake narrative was taught not just in the South, because as I said, I'm from Northern Wisconsin. Their story got picked up everywhere. And, you know, if you look at most Hollywood movies, wherever there's, you know, they're set after the Civil War or during the Civil War, it's always like the Confederates that are the nice guys. And the heroes are often former Confederates. Not to mention Gone with the Wind and a whole bunch of other things. But, I mean, it was a constant repetition. And... It's, I mean, reading about Robert E. Lee, really. Ah, wow. There's a reason white supremacists love this guy. As the historian says, the myth of Lee is that he was a brilliant strategist, a devoted Christian, that he abhorred slavery, and he labored tirelessly after the war to try to bring the country back together. And it's all a lie. Yeah, he was a Christian. He was a devoted Christian, but his kind of Christianity, I don't think Jesus would recognize. The reason I was taught that he was such a wondrous man is because the South wrote the story. And the South produced a 150-year propaganda campaign designed to elevate the traitors that led the army of the Confederacy and to erase slavery as the cause and then, of course, to totally whitewash the Confederacy as a noble cause, the lost cause. And it's that narrative, that fake history, the lost cause that was the bedrock and foundation on which Jim Crow rose. And it was when Jim Crow was at its height that statues like these, like I'm looking at it like we're put up all over the South. 
if you look at how uh, Lee actually wrote about black people, it is just appalling. His cruelty as a slave owner was known, known. By 1860, he had broken up every single slave family he owned. He didn't allow any family units. He sold off children, separated husbands and wife, wives. One of Lee's slaves, who later wrote about his experience, said he was the worst man I ever see. It's uh, it's a it's a harrowing story to read about him and and to know that I was so misled to say the least, lied to about this man. I remember when I went away to college in 1966. Um, I I was blown away by I think I've said this before, but I, when I took a history class. I would seem that everything I'd been taught was was bull. <laughs> I mean, everything. I was taught this, you know, narrative that Americans wanted to tell their white children, I guess all their children. I guess, yeah, because black kids had to swallow this crap, too. But lest you think it was just in the South, I don't know what you were taught or at what age you were taught these things. But I'm telling you, the way up in the Union in Wisconsin, we were taught the Southern story. It's really fascinating to me that how history is put in stone and how it is remembered and how everybody always assumed that it's the victor who writes that story, except here. The Southern version is what most of us, even if not all of it, we took in a lot of it. So Lee's, you know, I, part of me was thinking, big deal, statues, statues. No, but they're they're meaningful. A, a symbol has power. Uh, what we need to do, of course, is after you get the statues down, you need to move on to the the heavy lifting. And a New York Times piece on the there was a crowd watching uh, Lee go down. Uh, a crowd of mostly black people. But they interviewed this uh, white guy who lived, uh, lives right there on Monument Avenue. He was there. And he said, and this is interesting, and I think also reason for some measure of hope, okay? 
He's what? How old? 68 years old. So he's a 68-year-old Southern white guy. His name is Irv Cantor. That's a Jew. He said, I was naively thinking that we could keep these statues and, you know, just add new ones to show the true history and everything would be fine. (laughs) But then he said, after Charlottesville and after George Floyd and after the Black Lives Matter movement, he changed his mind. And I I just want to say that that Black Lives Matter movement really, really helped change a lot of old white people's minds. There is no doubt about it. Opened up a lot of eyes. There is no doubt about it. This guy is one indication because he said, now I understand. I understand the resentment that folks would have toward these monuments. I don't think they can exist anymore. That's one mind changed, truly changed. And there's more than that. There is still one Confederate monument in Richmond. And the reason it's still there, it's of some general named A.P. Hill. The city is working to get it down, but it's got a little bit more of a problem because it turns out General Hill's remains are inside. And so I don't know. I guess that requires a little more intricacy in the uh, taking down. But Richmond, you got to tip your hat to Richmond. Richmond was more full of these statues than just about any city. And they're down. Everyone except which will soon be. Now lest you think this is something that's happening everywhere. North Carolina in 2017, four years ago, had about 220 memorials, Southern memorials, Confederate memorials on public land, okay? 220. How many are still there today? 190. The vast majority still stand. And I'll give you one other white person's take and I I like this too I just like it when you hear people changing because people change they can change for the better you can teach old dogs new tricks the guy who is yeah 68 who said I get it now 
This woman who's 62, her name is Maggie Johnson. She's a waitress. She grew up in the South, a conservative Republican family that taught her that hard work always brings you success. And anybody who says that they're being held back for one reason or the other is just lazy. That's what she believed. And then her life went a little bit awry and she ended up in prison. That opened her eyes. So she was in the crowd, one of the white people in the crowd, watching General Lee come down. And she told the reporter, you know, when my friends say, I'm a hardworking person and I don't have any privilege, she says, I tell him, privilege isn't about money. Privilege is about thinking the world works for everybody else the way it works for you. About right. She's got that right. And she gets it now. People can change. So, let me see here. Uh, Janet writes, yeah, my impression of Lee and Grant was the same as yours. Lee was a Southern gentleman, and Grant was a drunk. She says, you know, as I look at Grant in current times, I wonder if he suffered from PTSD. Well, you got to figure everybody did. <laughs> I mean, everybody in that war had to. Uh, yeah. So let me find some other things to share with you. I was happy to see this in the business section today. Well, I wasn't happy to see it, but I, I like, uh, you know, seeing the numbers that show how little the rich pay <coughs> in taxes. Uh, the Treasury Department has put out a report that says 1%, the wealthiest 1% of Americans, are the biggest tax evaders in the country. And we know it. IRS knows it. Everybody knows it. But they don't have the means to go after them because the 1% have the money to pay for Tons of really expensive lawyers who shield and uh, hide and take advantage of every loophole and set up dummy corporations and do this and that. And I mean, there, there's one trick after the other, which technically are legal that they use. But the IRS doesn't have the staff or the ability to go after him. It's a David V. Goliath. So the IRS has always gone after little people because that's the only people they can take on and win. But the little people overwhelmingly pay their taxes. 
tax compliance rates are really high for Americans who are in the low and middle income category. Amazing. But they're the ones who are getting audited. So one of the things the Biden administration wants to do is beef up the IRS so they can go after the people who are really doing the tax evasion and who, in fact, have the money and whose tax evasion amounts to easily $163 billion a year that should be going into the public coffers. The IRS figures that it would amount to $7 trillion in unpaid taxes over a decade. Now, this won't surprise you. Republicans are saying that Biden's proposals to give more money to the IRS cannot be allowed to go forward because the IRS cannot be trusted with more power. (laughs) And the proposals are an invasion of privacy for all those poor rich people. So that brings me to this other thing. You know, we keep hearing that all everything Biden wants to do, oh my God, the price tag is just ridiculous. It's too, it's so high. Yeah, we can't possibly pay for it. Well, all the, the, the one of the ways, the ways that, that Biden wants to pay for it is getting the friggin' Americans who are the biggest tax evaders to pay what they owe, just like you do, just like I do. And if they did, lo and behold, guess who's got enough money to do all of this stuff that will help this country immeasurably? And then, you know, you look at the reporting on Biden's budget measures, the reconciliation bill. I know your eyes start going around in your head. But this is the stuff that where Manchin goes apeshit and says, why we can't have it, too much. So, uh, yeah, no. Every time you see a report about the bill that really has to pass, even though its odds aren't great, it's called what? It says it's three and a half trillion dollars. Three and a half trillion dollars, which, of course, doesn't mean anything to anybody about it does sound like a lot. But guess what? These reporters never say. Yeah, it's three and a half trillion dollars over 10 years. How often does that those three words get appended? To any of their reportage. It's a big omission. 
three and a half trillion over 10 years. So now knowing it's 10 years, then this thing that makes Manchin plots really costs 350 billion a year, right? And then if you further parse that down, 350 billion? Well, guess what, guys? That's about $1,000 per, per American a year. Now, does that seem so outrageous that the government should spend $1,000 a year on each one of us? And by doing so, the collective impact is huge. But every time you hear or see this three and a half trillion, blah, 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 I, you remember $1,000 for every American. That's what it is, that level of spending. And somehow that seems very manageable, does it not? saw a story about the Supreme Court today that just unfriggin' believable. Um, the Supreme Court, you know, <laughs> it says here that the Supreme Court has stayed the execution. Oh, they were going to execute some guy. I think in Texas, that's where they like to execute people, one of the places. Yeah, Texas guy. And, you know, when you're about to be executed, your lawyer tries mightily every time to, you know, stop it. And this guy, this is a guy who says, I need my pastor to be in the death chamber with me. I need to hear him praying with me. I need him. I need the touch of his hand on me. And then, and I'm not saying you can't take me, but this is all I want. And it's against the protocol for uh, executions in Texas. So it made its way to the Supreme Court. Um, and lo and behold, these <laughs> this conservative Supreme Court doesn't have much trouble killing people, usually. Uh, they stayed the execution. Now, here's what becomes more interesting. In 2019, a similar case came to the court. This is a guy who wanted his pastor with him when he was killed by the state. And this was in Alabama. And he appealed to the Supreme Court. And guess what the court did then? The court said, nah, go ahead and kill him. Because this guy was a Muslim and he had wanted his imam present. Somehow the court couldn't quite see why that was a big deal. Essentially, same case comes before them, only this time it's a Christian. And lo and behold, the court gets it. 
Now, here's another little piece of information, which is mind-blowing to me, that in the case with the Muslim inmate, the court, 5-4, 5-4, no reason asking who the five are, you know, Republicans. As I said, this was in Alabama. Alabama's law and policy regarding executions said this, that only a Christian chaplain employed by the prison could offer spiritual guidance to condemned inmates. How did that pass constitutional muster? So Christians, Christians are allowed that guidance and comfort. Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, not so much. And Justice uh, Elena Kagan at the time was just freaked by it. And she obviously was one of the four in this dissent. She said, what, a Christian prisoner can have a minister of his own faith accompany him into the execution chamber to say his last rites. But if an inmate practices a different religion, Islam, Judaism, any other, he may not die with a minister of his own faith by his side. And do you think that five justices sit there and listen to that and say, yeah, that's right. Oh, man. Oh, and speaking of the court, I never shared this with you, but I just thought it was, you know, when the Texas abortion law uh, was found by the court to be fine and hunky-dory and able to go into effect with no problem, even though it's just blatantly unconstitutional. Uh, that was done by uh, what's called, I'm sure you've heard the term now, a shadow docket, where the court didn't give any, they just do it in, you know, essentially the dead of night. They don't hear <clears throat> any arguments. They don't uh, get they don't have to write an opinion and explain themselves. And normally this is done for like very quick, like staying in execution. But using that kind of decision-making for the Supreme Court has not in the past been used for really big cases, which deserve a public hearing and all the bells and whistles that come with it. But this court, this Trump court, has used this shadow docket over and over again and has reshaped the legal landscape in the country in the dark. It has used the shadow docket for changes to immigration enforcement, for disputes over election rules, for public health orders, 
for during the pandemic, for evictions during the pandemic, and now for that unbelievable, unconstitutional abortion bill passed by Texas. The court has waded into these hugely consequential areas of the law using this ability to not explain a damn thing, to not even hear an argument. And believe me, legal scholars are freaking out about it. You know, it's cowardly, mostly. Nothing gets signed, nothing gets written. However, in this case, in the Texas abortion case, some things were written. They were written by the justices who said, are you out of your mind? The dissenters. They wanted to be on record as dissenting, that they had nothing to do with this. And one was Sonia Sotomayor. And part, you know how these dissents are, and, and all these things are written in such, you know, legalistic language. Well, you can hear the steam coming out of her ears. And she called out the Trumpers on that court for, and these are her words, their breathtaking defiance of constitutional order, their stunning rejection of precedent, and their flaming cowardice. And then when a justice dissents, they always sign it respectfully and then their names. And she has always done that. Except this time. There was no respectfully because she couldn't write respectfully since she clearly has no respect for these colleagues. Uh, Hey, a friend sent me this, and please, somebody tell me this isn't true. I have not been able to – so after the the Texas thing, um, Pelosi and the House said that they were going to try to statutorily, you know, secure abortion. And so there's this thing called the Women's Health Protection Act which would establish a federal right to abortion care uh, because, you know, Roe v. Wade is a, is a court. Legislatively, abortion on the federal level has never been legal. It was not made legal that way. It was made legal through a court ruling, Roe v. Wade. And uh, this is a bill to correct that. The bill in the democratically controlled House has 189 co-sponsors. In the Senate, because it's already been placed into the Senate coffers, 
it has 48 co-sponsors, obviously all Democrats, 48. So that means two Democrats are missing. And this that I saw says the two Democrats that have not signed on as co-sponsors are not surprisingly Joe Manchin. But the second one is Bob Casey. Just saying. Uh, You might want to call Casey's office. Bob Casey and Joe Manchin. And you need the two and Kamala Harris and you get 51. I don't know about filibuster stuff. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I'm exhausted. Oh, I got something I can talk about that is not quite so fraught. You know how I, oh, wait, I got a pet peeve. I got a pet peeve. I got a pet peeve. And I meant to say this the other day. God, will somebody stop when you go into a waiting room in a doctor's office or in a hospital? Will they turn off that damn television? That's all I'm saying. As I told you, I was in the ER for a long time the other day. And it was on, at least it wasn't on Fox News, which is often the case. It was on, uh, I think, NBC or CBS. I don't know. It was early in the morning. And the idiocy. I don't watch morning television. Oh, my God, the idiocy. The silliness. The laughing. And all that's in that room are people in pain or sick as dogs. They're not, you're sick. You do not want to hear this crap. It was like being tortured. I'm just saying they turn those televisions off. It's not like places aren't noisy enough. I want them turned off at airports. I want them turned off in these public places where they do not need to be. Everybody's got a friggin' phone now. If they want to see or hear something, they can do it individually. Thank you. That was a rant. Okay, so anyway, this other thing I was going to talk to you about, you know how annoyed I am by uh, these linguistic changes how I've pointed out in the past that now nobody can answer a question without first saying so. I mean, it's almost, it's constant. If you ask, how are you doing today? They don't just say fine. They say, so I'm, so what did you do? So what did you do today? So I, so, so, so. And the other one that I've talked about is at the end of the sentence, where now you're constantly hear people saying, right? So you make a so, you make a statement, and then you say, right? And it is constant, constant. I've caught myself many times doing it. And this is not how we used to talk. 
the right thing I remember a little bit, which I always took to be people who were unsure of themselves. And so they need constant, you know, nodding. So when somebody says right, you tend to say, nod your head. It's annoying, but, you know, I get it. But there was this article I read about, and it's written, I guess, by a linguist who said, had a slightly different spin on it. They think this comes mostly out of internet stuff. And also, um, I mean, what's weird is that they quote a Stanford professor, actually a former Stanford professor, who then went on to become a venture capitalist. <laughs> and he has a very specific theory about the appending of right. Right? He says this, my take is that this is a classic speech virus. I believe it started in the particle physics community in the early 1980s. What? That's what he says. I believe it's, it has to start somewhere. I believe it started in the particle physics community in the early 1980s, then spread to the solid state physics community who knew there were such communities in the mid-1980s, and then to the neuroscience community in the late 1980s. It appears to have gone mainstream just in the past few years. I'm not sure what caused that latest jump. And so it turns out other people start looking, and they say the thing saying right is you do see it in academics for science, science academics. And somebody suggested that because science is often, you know, difficult, and when you're trying to explain something to somebody, you're making sure they're with you. So you say, right? You know, making sure that you're following me, then, right? Right? And that makes some sense, actually. Uh, the article says, though, that Mark Cuban. Pittsburgher is guilty of saying right constantly. And it says he disguises the right as a question, but really it's the opposite. It's a flat, affectless confirmation of whatever he himself just said. <laughs> He's not asking for you to nod. He's saying blah, 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 right? It's like a period, exclamation point. But the other thing they say is the so stuff is used by people who can't answer a question. They don't think they can answer the question without first giving a backstory. And that makes sense, too. And they suggest that the proliferation where you see this most often is on cable news shows. All the talky, talky people, because in order to make their case, they step back. So even though they're asked a question, by the way, that so was a so doing its good old fashioned job. So then they're asked uh, a question that they feel they can't just do the answer to without giving some preface. And so they say, so, 
blah, 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 blah. And then they can get up to speed a little bit. And so both of these, so and right, are often used for people attempting to explain something. The so before the sentence, giving a back story. The right at the end of the sentence, uh, making sure you understood the explanation. So I'm just telling you that because I found it linguistically interesting, right? And that's that. Uh, did I see a special on ABC last night about the women? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. I did not. I didn't. Uh, what? Uh, had one day. It was a surprise to look up and see Nina Pineda. Oh, yeah, I heard um, a friend of hers uh, told me the other day that he knew that she was on some special interviewed. <clears throat> Nina Pineda, by the way, um, a former reporter at WTAE television here um, who then went to uh, New York city as a, she's from Johnstown originally. She went to New York as a reporter, television reporter, and she was, Oh, well, she was in a place you wouldn't have wanted to be on nine 11. She wasn't in the buildings, but she was close. And um, I have heard her tell, the, her harrowing uh, story because she obviously comes back here and has friends here. And she and I have a common friend. I, Nina and I never worked together, but we have a friend in common. And so we often would see each other. Yeah, I didn't see it. Well, unbelievable. All right. Well, as I said, 20 years ago, today, we were living in a world that was going to disappear in two days, and we didn't. Well, it's always the case. You don't know. Blissful ignorance. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Uh, sorry about this foreshortened week. Um, next week, also, I'm afraid, uh, this always happens in the fall. Um, I will not be here. Is it? Wednesday or Tuesday, I'm blanking, um, Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. And uh, I, I will not be able to do the show that day, but I'll be back Monday. Okay. And I hope I am able to talk to you, see you, talk at you, whatever it is then. Okay. Have a great weekend. Be careful. Uh, things are a little nuts out there right now. Be careful, please. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.